0: So um, in 2020 uh, especially, so in these last six months, we've seen much increased responsibilities and mandate of Cyberspace Administration of China. For example, deep fakes and fake information created with AI, VR, AR are considered now under the law a threat to the social order and hence national security. And the Chinese government in this regard is prosecuting both users as well as hosting services if they fail to abide by these rules.
1: In our second episode, we discuss with Nina Page, fellow PhD candidate and research fellow at the Center of International Relations at the University of Ljubljana about the trends and priorities in digitalization, artificial intelligence, security and the market in China and East Asia. From issues of economic and policy importance to inequality and online technologies, this episode is all about China. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petricos, and today's episode is about China, artificial intelligence, digitalization, and security. Uh, Today we have with us Nina Page, who is a PhD candidate and research fellow at the Center of International Relations at the University of Ljubljana, leading projects with academic and industry partners on topics of AI, digitalization, infrastructure, in-connection, to the East Asian region, focusing mostly on China. She is the managing editor of the Journal of International Relations and Development and a co-founder and CEO of the Gender Equality Research Institute. She is head of Symbiosa International, an international wing of genesis, and a Slovenian enterprise dealing with digital skills. She is the former COO of we Think. Uh, from 2018 to the 2019, and former research fellow at the Slovenian Defense Research Center in 2017 and 2018. Nina, it's a great pleasure to have you here today. Many thanks uh, for making the time for us.
0: Hi, it's nice to be here.
1: So China and you know AI, digitalization, security, this is quite an interesting thread of topics here. They're all interlinked, and uh, we see a lot of reports going on uh, out there in the media, but also within academic circles and policymaking circles. Would you like to start off by giving us an overview of digitalization in China and what sort of policy priorities currently exist?
0: Yeah, sure. Thank you for this uh, interesting question. Maybe just briefly. So um, I think what you described can be best described with one, um, one phrase, and this is Industry 5.0 that you probably already uh, know a lot about and um how china connects to it is of course not through our term or it's, it is maybe now over taking over also or taking up also our term industry 5.0 and society 4.0 but um, we can best understand basically chinese policy in this field is if we look at the grand plan of china uh, which is created for every 5 years so the the five-year plan and currently uh, we are in the phase of the finishing so the the 13th five-year plan is currently finishing in 2020 and what's interesting from the policy point of view in that plan is that it's very focused on innovation and it considers it a cornerstone of its development so basically through digitalization of the industry they want to kind of push uh, the manufacturing of the value chain. Um, so kind of increase GDP and improve the performance in various industries through digitalization and through the use of modern technologies. And what is also interesting is that the 13th five-year plan, as every plan until now, is just a cornerstone document. While, um, of course, there are several action plans that then focus on uh, realization of the this master plan let's say and the action plan for innovation digitalization and so on is again divided into several different realization plans and this is what kind of pushes china forward also is kind of different there it varies from province to province so it's like if we would call it like a eu directive so each of the provinces get the, uh, uh, the goals the main aims that they are trying to achieve very very described in the detail but how the path that they um kind of will take to reach them it's their own and this is what kind of then also guides policy making on a very provincial or city level and uh, this is what drives innovation in china i would say the competition between these different provinces and cities if we are taking into account beijing and shanghai and shenzhen for example we are very um you, you can clearly see this competition there and yeah, I would say that this is kind of the drive
1: of the Chinese
0: digitalization in terms of policy.
1: That's quite interesting because uh, we there's a, this strong focus on innovation outlined within each uh, five-year plan. And now that it, it, it is coming to an end in 2020, it, it seems there is a, a strong economic drive behind this. But do you think that this uh, sort of shapes at the same time new trends and new priorities within the Chinese national security architecture? Because certainly, if you, if a state wants to protect their economy, uh, they also have to invest in a national security architecture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a very good question again. I would say that national security architecture has changed a lot in the last couple of years, not only online, but in various aspects. So if we look at the armed forces, for example, I was looking at the rapid response units um they increased in comparison to the army so a lot of um so if we're just looking at the regular army forces they have decreased a bit because a lot of the the soldiers were actually transferred to the rapid response units which which are units that respond um and for example protests so they are kind of planning for uh, large scale um societal changes in the future this is why they're planning their national security (laughs) ahead also and these these changes that i was mentioning of course also apply to the to the online world so um in 2020 uh, especially so in these last six months we see much increased responsibilities and mandate of cyberspace administration of china for example um deep fakes and fake information created with ai vr ar are considered now under the law, a threat to the social order and hence national security. And the Chinese government in this regard is prosecuting both users as well as hosting services if they fail to abide by these rules. So um, this actually mirrors, it's very interesting that it mirrors similar legislation designed in the US, for example, in California, if I remember correctly, uh, that prohibits the use of these tools in political campaigns. So um, they are planning, they are basically incorporating digitalization and all the challenges that are uh, coming with it uh, into the national security plans and maybe just in terms of cyber security like which you mentioned um, so also the cyber security laws change a lot also during the coronavirus so china has around 220 laws in this regard that regulate the field and um, recently i would say in may and april they accepted a set of new rules regarding the use of networks that also plays, and this is interesting for Europe and the West in general, additional burdens on foreign companies and how they handle data, especially collected from the Chinese citizens. You know, and China has eight King Kongs that are top internet companies that are in its supply chain, domestic supply chain. So they have to function in China because China does not have the whole infrastructure to supply the whole supply chain in this regard so it's cisco it's google it's ibm it's microsoft it's oracle uh and i'm forgetting three other but you can look it up online and basically uh they they are now facing like a lot of uh, new regulations you know they already uh, had to move a lot of these data center operators to follow that regulation and now they are a bit more um they they will have to adapt again because um yeah, these new laws require much more cooperation with the Chinese authorities from foreign companies than if they would, for example, um, be placed in Europe.
1: Okay, so there's there's a lot of uh, interesting things here. So uh, you've uh, referred to deepfake and AI technology. Uh, You've uh, referred to the current pandemic as well and how this changes a number of things for both China, but also uh, other partners abroad, and uh, including European business uh, circles. And uh, one question, though, let's start off by taking a glimpse at the technology that we see in uh, deepfake AI strands. We look at um, this uh, sort of legislation that you refer to. This is a piece of law that says that it's essentially if uh, citizens uh, use or in, in political campaigns or for any other mm-hmm. pursuit of business, if they decide to use uh, such technology, they can be branded as a, a national threat
0: yeah, exactly. to the state. Yeah.
1: So, um, what, what happens when the state? chooses to use this technology. Does the state use this technology to achieve any um, policy objectives?
0: It's interesting. Yeah, I guess uh, it does. I mean, I think state uses this in two ways. Of course, there are always these para-state actors that are functioning, and China has a lot of them, especially in the kind of the eastern part of the country. There are some serious cyber threats coming from China all the time. Um, But um, I guess that, On one hand, the Chinese government is afraid of these social media and these new technologies and how it can influence the atmosphere in the country, as seen in the protests in Hong Kong, as seen during the COVID crisis. And they are indeed, like you said, perceiving it as a large scale social unrest possibility. On the other hand, of course, the government is using its own artificial intelligence tools uh, you are probably the most familiar with the credit score system and um, it's probably one of the most talked about things in the last year or two and we have to know that it's it's nothing new mm-hmm. kinda. they are just using much more powerful tools to power that system and maybe we can turn a bit into the policy theory just shortly to understand where is it coming from so every country usually has a desire to you know use algorithms to optimize their systems you know you you are saving on resources you are saving on some means that should that are then used that would be used to detect deviant part of the population so the criminal part of the population which is present in every population so every nation right in in terms of private uh, criminal activities or business criminal activities even and so on Uh, But also in the case of China, for sure, from the very high number of the financial and social frauds that happened in the last year, especially because it started to use a lot of online payment system via mobile phones. And there have been a lot of local scandals as well, like in terms of corruption, prostitution and so on. So um, what I think what made China transfer uh, a lot of its social credit score system to the digitalized world, which makes it now so much more powerful, is precisely the combination of all these factors. So much more efficient use of resources, savings, and also um, basically this prevention of uh, frauds, fraudulent behavior from individuals um and yeah of course it's the social economic credit systems are not confined to china as well so most industrialized nations have some kind of credit ratings for decades now that quantify the financial risks associated with individuals firms and so on um but the problem with the chinese one is that the social factors are being included to make more accurate predictions so Let me just give a very plastic example. Um, Crossing the street, of course, because of the smart system, so smart city systems that are already set up. For example, in Shenzhen, I was there in uh, January. There are around 200,000 cameras in Shenzhen city. Um, So if you cross the system and the AI uh, in the cloud, which is of course possible because of the 5G technology, this kind of processing is much faster. Um, so, it detects your face if you cross the streets incorrectly and you get a ticket, a payment to your mobile phone um, in seconds, right? And you can also pay it via mobile phone in seconds. So, this is basically how how activities are supervised. And then, um, of course, if you cross the road incorrectly many times, this is then let's say a part of your social credit score system and at one point if you also you know commit a fraud within your company and you fail to pay taxes and a number of other we can list here a number of other mm-hmm. reasons then at one point for example a chinese company airline company will not sell you a ticket for the plane anymore Right.
1: yeah wow well it's uh <laughs> we essentially live in the era where uh jaywalking uh monitoring is essentially automated and uh, yeah it's uh it affects every other aspect of yeah. uh, citizens lives
0: exactly so you will not be punished only for the individual act um every individual act but you will also be punished like um through, through kind of like your lifestyle choices, you know, they want to travel, but well, you cannot if you cheat on taxes. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of taking it into the whole different new uh, privacy and um, kind of individual consciousness de- dilemma. You know, how much can we be supervised? Is it good for our functioning to be so supervised at all points in our life?
1: Absolutely, and you know, this is a whole package that comes together with this uh, so-called fourth industrial revolution. Uh, it's uh, you, you've because you've also referred to other industrial uh, industrialized uh, states. So vis-à-vis this fourth industrial revolution specifically, when we look at all these complications, well, and all these uh, policy decisions that affect uh, day-to-day life in China. What happens with other with China's partners abroad? So with European businesses, for example, and uh, other foreign policy circles. All this technology. How does it? Um, is there like greater interaction at this point? Or the greater cooperation to introduce such technology abroad, outside China. Is there a conflict? Is there uh, competition, mm-hmm. you know? So how does this affect the mm-hmm. foreign and business policy circles?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that all countries are uh, kind of steering into the direction to you, to be more digitalized in this regard. And um, if we take a look at the Netherlands, for example, or Denmark, they're already using a lot of smart city systems that risk some of the privacy that we talked about and uh, um, freedom to kind of have better um, supervision safety uh less bureaucratic procedures and so on i think it was denmark it is in denmark where they use but i'm not sure about this case Uh, so they they use um a lot of artificial intelligence tools and this automatic decision making in judiciary system for example so um we are all moving into this direction let's say But of course, there has been a big clash in terms of what technology to use and is it risky to use the Chinese technology in this regard or do we profit from using the European technology in Europe or American technology, for example, in Europe as well? Um, because uh, let's say that a lot of uh, this clash has recently been around the 5G technologies, which is probably what you also wanted to (laughs) talk about. Uh, Because, of course, the 5G enables, you know, faster functioning of the cloud. It enables AR, VR technology, real-time transfer uh, of information into the cloud. And then the processing of this information enables autonomous vehicles. It enables the entire... kind of industry 5.0 in this regard and of course we have here, you know, uh, very geostrategic or geopolitical, uh, very pronounced geopolitical competition in this regard. So uh, we have in the same field, we have Huawei, we have Nokia, we have Ericsson as different kind of suppliers of the equipment. But um, what we also need to discuss, decide about is how much uh, this, I think it's a fact that we will accept 5G technologies and everything that comes with it. I think it's our future. I don't think this is even um, on the agenda anymore in terms of states, in Europe especially. But now we have to decide on how we will use it and what kind of protections we will um, place, for, especially for the private companies and for the state not to exploit the new technologies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Does it make sense? You can ask any sub-questions that you want. To. Okay.
1: It's, <laughs> it, it's, there's plenty of sub-questions, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. However, like, we, we do have to acknowledge the innovation behind this because it, we're talking about great steps taken towards achieving uh, further innovation, uh, producing new technology, Again, looking on the positive side of things, despite the competition, competition usually also breeds, you know, new opportunities, not just new challenges. But because I don't really want to get into the the super specifics of uh, these uh, sub questions and sub challenges, I want to focus first of all on a very specific thing that you've mentioned regarding the geopolitical challenges. If we look at this uh, rivalry, these challenges. Um, between uh, Mm -hmm. China and uh, the West, like specifically Mm -hmm. Europe. I'm not going to begin touching the United States Mm -hmm. for the time being. When looking at it through a comparative scope, what other challenges are there in East Asia? And are those greater than the ones that we see in the European market and in the European uh, policy circles?
0: In terms of innovation...
1: In terms of innovation, but also, you know, in terms of uh, security. Because China Mm -hmm. also, uh, and allow me to clarify, China also has this uh, geopolitical rivalry happening in East Asia. Namely, when we look at the South China Sea, obviously this whole technology fits in there. Uh, We know that 5G technology and uh, other sort of technology produced by companies like Huawei... Uh, contribute to uh, the armament, the digital armament of the uh, national forces. So uh, apart from this decrease, as you've uh, mentioned at the very beginning, of uh, the armed forces moving on towards rapid response units to to deal with protests, Mm -hmm. we also see an increase in investment in this sort of technology in order to monitor Uh, Other conflicts, so for example, the Mm -hmm. conflict with uh, South China Sea. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: when it comes to that sort of rivalry, what do you think? Uh, How does this compare?
0: Yeah, uh, I I would not say that there is a greater volume of challenges, but there is a greater greater freedom on how to go around these challenges or how to face these challenges in East Asia. So because of the loose of regulation, you know, it's very easy to establish this link between private and public. In China, especially... Looking at the for example, Hainan island, right where a lot of these cyber um, cyber attacks are recently coming from to various sectors you know to for example to shipping industry and not only you know to Europe or to United States or to public sector and so on, but to for example, shipping industries and um, so ships that um, sail in the south China sea, let's say for example it's it's of course it's very unclear because the the link you know, the the for example this particular hacking group is placed in the Chinese territory and it should be kind of supervised by the Chinese authorities if it would not kind of have some kind of um state links, let's say. And while this cyber espionage, I think, for national security concern is a common action <laughs> which is conducted by most countries, it's nothing unusual. I think what represents a bigger Uh, Threat here in terms of coming from China and also in its neighborhood for other countries Let's say for Vietnam for Thailand and so on for its neighborhood where China is obviously seeking kind of role of a Regional hegemon in this regard um, Is the cyber espionage for economic benefits? And this is basically an accusation that is continually made against the Chinese government and its military and there is a although there are some reports that kind of indicated a decline in commercial cyber espionage especially for example during the time of president obama's administration and so on when a lot of these uh, agreements and talks were kind of conducted recently we saw an increase in that as well with trump administration and then with um, of course europe marked china as a systemic rival and so on so i would say that they have a bit more freedom on how to face the challenges in their neighborhood. While in Europe, of course, we, we are deriving from an entirely different doctrine of thought in terms of re- regulation and how an individual company uh, is regulated because we, of course, protect the property much more than in any part of the world. So, um, I, I, especially in comparison mm-hmm. to East Asia. Do you have any specific cases that you want to discuss here,
1: Kana? It's good to see this this comparative lens. I mean, what I'm trying to see here is the sort of a more systemic approach. So when we look at the state specifically, and you've already mentioned some very interesting points regarding this sort of attitude that we have, like, for example, in Europe, when it comes mm-hmm. to property, it's completely different than uh, other parts of the world, but when we look at these administration changes that you've mentioned, these sort of new peaks that we've seen with the Trump administration, we've also seen uh-huh. provocation, we've also seen a lot of mm-hmm. accusation, especially with uh, this uh, ongoing pandemic. And even before, of course, we've seen the, uh, the United States mm-hmm. administration placing a lot of emphasis against Chinese enterprises, against Chinese policy. And obviously, uh, this builds up a strong rivalry. If uh, like if we see if we see two camps sitting on opposing mm-hmm. sides, with both camps having access to a, an, an enormous amount of technology and uh, uh, military force, then you mm-hmm. know uh, it does affect policy circles in general in other parts of the world. Uh, it also affects cyber espionage, as you've mentioned. But what do you think? will be the outcome of uh, this in, uh, let's look at it first, short term, okay? We are still uh, undergoing this pandemic. There, there's an uneven distribution of the pandemic uh, all over the world. The United States now is facing uh, over a million uh, cases of uh, and uh, over 100,000 deaths, sadly, uh, at the time of our recording here now. Yeah. And uh, whereas China, there's 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 a very interesting approach in China, actually, because it seems that the China is reporting reduced cases. But at the same time, there have been other accusations that China is actually withholding numbers. So, you know, there's this whole thing that happens online because all this information that we have access to about both the United States, but also China, it's mostly online, right? So because obviously because of the restrictions and so on, we gather a lot of information online. So Mm -hmm. where I'm going with this is actually targeting uh, misinformation and disinformation, that sort of concept. So how do we, through this pandemic, through this crisis, when we look at this rivalry, how can we ensure that the information that we get is accurate or as accurate Mm -hmm. as possible? in order to be able to come up with a more focused and more um, mm-hmm. rational approach towards foreign policy, let's say, and uh, in turn make a better judgment when it comes to the decision making process.
0: I think you just asked me a million dollar question because <laughs> right. I, I don't think it's yeah it can be solved in this. Um, I can answer that in, in just, you know, like this brief time that we have or that even I can answer it at all. Um, you are right when you are, so you are talking about information, disinformation, and especially during the Corona crisis and the unrests that are going on, not not only in the United States, but also in Europe, for example, in Slovenia, every Friday there are protests. In Hong Kong, there are protests, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's crucial that we address this problem. And the lesson that we have learned from the Corona crisis is that well, a cyber attack, kind of, or cyber um, worm, or cyber information spreads faster and would spread further than any biological virus, like coronavirus. So, if for example, coronavirus has a reproductive rate of two to three, you know, you're transferring it to like two to three people. Uh, for example, the capacity of a uh, just a virus, a computer virus, is You know spreading to Mm -hmm. at least 27 people if i remember correctly something like that and the spread of information is of course much faster as well um, in these times especially now since we're all online and on the other hand an economic impact of any digital shutdown or any any you know big scale solution would be of big magnitude you know of greater magnitude that the economic problem that we are currently facing, especially in Europe, right? Or it will be a global financial crisis anyway, right. And um, so I think there is I'm not even sure if there is a big global solution that we can Mm -hmm. bring into account here. What I would say is that we need more regulation that we would agree on in on systemic level, at least in Europe let's say that especially for artificial intelligence we could apply something like you know the law of sea you know to kind of address the digital space as something common if that makes sense and then regulate the artificial intelligence within uh, one common uh, administration or organization or so on let's say so this is uh, my um (laughs) my kind of humble wish for the future <laughs> but i'm not sure if if something like that you know is really a possibility in the current uh, world order that we are facing so we have so many tensions going on and um, we have Russian interference into the U.S. elections. Even in Europe, right? In Montenegrin elections, we have Chinese commercial espionage. We have, you know, hackers from all over. We have anonymous. We have non-state actors that are doing the same thing and are contributing in some cases to even positive changes. We have ethical hackers and so on. And these, I think, they they all play cru- a crucial role in spreading. Misinform, disinformation, right? It's not up to only individuals anymore, but now we have states and parastate actors and non-state actors involved, and it has become a very complex security environment. And you are the experts on security, so maybe you can add something on that, <laughs> um, how you would face this digital crisis, kind of. But it is true, though, on the other hand, right, that we cannot do without these things as well. So, um, You know, if we would just kind of decline the digitalization altogether, yeah, we would face deep economic crisis and the countries that will not accept it will be the ones that will lag behind. So we will have more and more technologies that will enable more and more information spread and, you know, information influx to the citizens. And we just have to find a way on how to regulate this, I guess. What is your opinion?
1: I understand that it's quite a challenging question and uh, actually thank you so much for a- emphasizing that this is not a very simple question to answer. It has multiple strands, different topics, different sub questions that keep on that we have to bring up and mention. and you've gone from these uh, you've gone from uh, information misinformation and disinformation tactics to the concept of state and non-state actors the way I see it, and the way I've seen it in my research as well, is when we are dealing with this sort of information challenges, we have to begin Mm -hmm. uh, by taking simple steps and first look at the people, because the people themselves, they are the determining tool, the determining factor, if I may say, that will uh, guide the, uh, the the shaping of understanding this information in an uneducated public that isn't capable of understanding what cybersecurity challenges that we have, what uh, disinformation challenges that we have. If they're unable to understand that not everything that they see online, not everything that uh, people share on social media is actually true, then that's where the problems begin. And uh, the first step, I think to try and have an impact because then again this is we were talking about very a very small impact it's the very first baby step that can begin addressing this these challenges we we have to start by educating our uh, fellow citizens by bringing up these challenges and making them aware that Mm -hmm. not everything that they read out there is actually Mm -hmm. truthful. Then again, this can (laughs) create uh, some greater skepticism about positive things that we have. For example, the contribution. When we look at uh, 5G technology, there's good, reliable information by scientists, by experts, that uh, the role of uh, 5G technology and how it greatly boosts, opportunities in uh, the financial sector but also in from you know for the day-to-day tasks for improving uh, from hospital infrastructure to all these things and also when it comes to security uh, questions and people be- begin to think that nowadays 5G is a very hostile thing that is used for uh, boosting state surveillance or in some hardcore cases 5G technology supposedly uh, breeds COVID-19, which is such a... <laughs> well,
0: flat earthers will also be a part of, always be a part of, I-, I think every issue that you touch, there will be a percentage of flat earthers that have a very strong voice in their community, like vaccination, right? 5G, any hot topic that you t- take, you have a part of the population that will have like very loud um, voice and will, yeah, not go... hand in hand with science, I guess.
1: Definitely. And uh, there's also though, however, who sit in the middle, you know, the moderate ones who are not sure yet of Mm -hmm. uh, what happens, uh, of what to believe. And I think those are the people that we should also be reaching out to. And those are the people that should be part of these uh, educational programs, you know, developing real policy that addresses Educational challenges when it comes to technology, how people understand and perceive information. You know, one of the things that we do in sometimes in academia or even in policy-making circles is to overcomplicate things. We need to start breaking mm-hmm. down information for people. We have to face that we live in the Twitter age, where 140 characters is only is the only thing that people will read and understand and you know make their own decisions. I'm not saying I'm, and I'm not trying to downgrade human intelligence, but I'm saying that uh, mm-hmm. the attention span uh, when we when you're overloaded with information, post information era age and moving on to the fourth industrial revolution age, we are swamped with information. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out new innovative ways without undermining the value of science and research to try and reach out to people by delivering simple points whenever we want to emphasize something. And this can happen also when we look at research, because that's actually the starting point. When you want to influence policymaking, you you can do that through research, you can do it through science. But if you take up a long, uh, I don't know, 10,000-word essay in an academic journal, a policymaker is not going to be reading that. They will be reading an executive summary, right? <laughs> so we have to figure out better ways of doing that mm-hmm. and uh, make sure that the, the way we spread information is accurate enough and it's easy to interpret and to understand and i actually this moves on to another question and it's a very important and dear question to me one of the things that people nowadays when we look at protests when we look at uh rights the rights movements that we see around the world is about furthering equality and through the digitalization era i think we have a good opportunity to start talking about specifically Gender equality within policy and research circles more, because sadly today you know the link between gender and technology is sometimes left out of the discussion. So my question to you is, and I'm I'm actually bringing this because you also have an expertise uh, in gender-related topics. How can we raise further awareness over this? And I I think you can. uh, One of the things that you would possibly agree with is me how I've mentioned that we have to educate the wider public. But you've also mentioned that there is also those people who are left outside and they are unwilling to conform and, you know, unwilling to understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. They're unwilling to even begin compromising or debating on uh, things that they have, they hold a very absolute view over. And they're unwilling to mm-hmm. listen to what the other side has to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you for this question. Yeah, I think, you. I agree very much with what you were saying. So edu- education and having this conversation is crucial i think for raising awareness but not only for that but to also set the agenda so if we look here at the role of the state so if the state in any in any field let's say 5g or gender equality right i'm really generalizing here looking at the state we have to look to the state that to create a common strategy on the issue with the civil society, with the consulting sector, with public sector, with experts and so on. But um, the important thing here is opening up the agenda. So putting things on the agenda that should be discussed so that various voices could be heard, so that we can then actually have an inclusive conversation about these issues as with the 5g or gender equality it's the same thing right this is how I think how you can push societal change further and change the direction or or create an evolution in any concept in this world in any concept of our society so i would say that to reach sometimes um especially with my gender equality organization um what we avoid doing is we avoid preaching to the choir. So we avoid addressing and doing events or campaigns or anything, projects that would address the part of the population that is already convinced. No, what we give this part of the population is the chance to be a part of action, part of the change, to be involved, to really contribute, not only follow and you know attend events, but to do events. So you have to kind of let go of that ego um that pushes you to be, you know, the only gender equality organization in the field, let's say, or whatever, you know, or like the only company that is doing VR um, education. For example, VR, are, um, I don't know, um, transformative technology education um, kind of breakthroughs or so on. So you have to give these people that are already on your side a place to engage and to really, um, make a difference because like the coronavirus, you know, these things spread um, very easily from person to person when somebody is really convinced. And what the other side, or let's say this um, part of the population that is really against the changes has, is this convincing power and very strong, kind of strong, you know, people um, that, that are against, for example, that are now burning 5G stations have a stronger voice than, scientists who are saying there are no health issues connected to the 5g technology for example it's in itself you know and um so what we have to what we i think we need to do in terms of education is like really leaving some floor for these people that want to engage and want to do something but don't know really how to do how to do it and here the strategy comes in place of what do you want to achieve some clear goals and some clears kind of like KPIs you know if I use the kind of business language and leaving just people place to engage into the in the conversation and to open the agenda further and this is how you also reach the the moderate ones if you want to do things on a big scale I would say because one organization is not enough and um, you have to have you have to think basically as you would think, in in terms of digital disruption, you have to do something to scale your your purpose up, you know. And I think this is the way to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. And how applicable is this? Are these approaches when we look at China specifically? Because there have been a number of uh, reported cases because of the the past one-child policy in China. We see a lot of. Uh, gender equality issues here mm-hmm. and uh is this something that we we can also begin addressing in china and figuring out innovative ways to be to you know to try and further gender equality as well within not only chinese society but also within the chinese decision making circles
0: it's a very interesting question and i think it depends on uh, you know we are still living in a democracy here in europe and china of course is not it's a uh, You know, one party system, it's not a democracy. And the rules might be stricter and the risk for engaging in civil action might be higher, are definitely higher. So I think that the process there has to be changed. And here I think innovation and the use of new technology can really come into account. What we have to make sure here is that the technology in itself does not replicate the already existing social patterns which we already know. So bias, you know, biases are in every innovation, like in history, you know, in airbags, there are biases. The develop the design of airbags, there are biases. So the women die uh, sooner if the airbag in the car, you know, like starts or like, how do how do we, how do you even call that? Like, um, shoots out?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm not quite sure about that yeah. myself. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so th- there have been biases in innovation you know for years So you have to first make sure that the technology that you would be using for that kind of social action is not biased in itself but then also to kind of use it to kind of um, take a different path to towards societal change than um, you would use in europe i think it has to adapt to the system but how i have really like little idea i guess um you can do a lot through just, um, you know, economic engagement of women, for example, um, and just letting women achieve higher uh, economic status uh, uh, than they, they can achieve now. But, you know, this is all very much conditioned with the social patterns and stereotypes that they have and that we have and they differ, you know, they differ not in all senses, but in some cases we have similar ones, for example, taking care of the family. You know, in China, there is a case that women often don't, um, uh, for example, there is a stereotype that women with PhDs will not get married as easily as women without PhDs. Why? Because they achieve higher economic status at the end and this is then shameful for the men. So, in terms of academia of course this is very problematic because you will have less even less women in academia than you would have if the social pressure is not so high so um i would say that 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 what you really have to do is kind of address the very roots of the problem and this is the kind of this um yeah social patterns that we are holding and this is on every individual so if Maybe to follow this Eastern philosophy, or, um, and not to sound too cheesy, but um, you know, if you, if as a man, you know, you take on some um, responsibility for for other people around you and for yourself, that you do not engage in the behavior that is, you know, counterproductive to the goal of gender equality, then I guess we are one step closer. And what I think has to be done is not to punish um, especially women to that reach economic empowerment and that reach social empowerment not to punish them with you know these additional burdens of stereotypes <laughs> on their shoulder and um, yeah but i guess the the change is much more difficult in a much more uh, closely monitored regime and the chinese regime of course it or the Chinese system is uh, very much monitored through social media, through new technologies, through artificial intelligence. Everything that we discussed about, so any such um, unwanted movements or protests and so on will not be easily accepted, right? So you have to find kind of different ways, maybe through 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 culture, through arts, um, through 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 exchanges through knowledge transfer you know helping organiz- organizations of civil society helping each other this is what we have too little of so even myself and I do I am a founder of such organization I don't have any contact with the chinese gender equality organization. so if only there would be some kind of you know funding or program or something that we could you know meet and exchange knowledge Um, True, that would be great. For example, this is one practical example.
1: I absolutely agree with you. We have to begin looking at things uh, the way they've been gradually formed through social strands through this uh, what I actually refer to as this sort of um, social construction of norms, ideas, beliefs because these things they still matter when it comes to trying to understand another community, the way society operates and the way they accept or reject things. These all things they still matter to a certain extent. But I, the way I see it is, it, they matter more when you you're, when they are more when there's fluidity. So when you're able to change these, when you're able to uh, to, to to show that you know there's just one, there's mm-hmm. way more than just one way of actually of, of getting things done. Uh, especially when it comes to uh, the social understanding and the status of. Uh, for example, women in society and uh, it's things that not, they're not just uh, you know applicable to China but also everywhere else in the world. We have to to begin realizing as a society that uh-huh. things can change and they can move towards a more uh, positive note. Uh, this is also I guess it also goes back to the um, tackling the problem at its root and identifying that you know these things not only, are unfair towards uh, women Mm -hmm. or other vulnerable groups, but they also prevent further innovation, further creativity, and in turn, further development. If we want to evolve as a society, as a global society of active citizens, we have to understand that any impediment that we Mm -hmm. set up upon ourselves is actually counterproductive.
0: Exactly. May I just add something in this regard? So if we really want to reach the society for 4.0 or um, whatever the next stage of our evolution or yeah um, it is necessary that nobody is held back and um, it's necessary that this inclusion happens before you know a tragedy happens you know like one child policy where thousands of girls were were murdered basically and or what is happening um, in the united states now with the black lives matter so it is for me it is necessary to try to come to these changes before the, the things kind of, you know, really reach rock bottom. And um, I think it's in interest of every country to, to realize these changes as soon as they feel it among the population.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Nina, thank you so much for your time. I have to say this has been a very, very interesting discussion about things that uh, I personally hold very dear to me. And I'm sure you've also uh, had the opportunity to touch a number of uh, interesting questions for our uh, for the people who listen to us. And uh, it's a great chance. You know, these podcasts that we do, it's our way of reaching out to the wider community and uh, hopefully bringing out a more positive note on how to deal with things, how to further invest in innovation and uh, you know progress because progress we, we don't have to look at only progress in numbers but also the qualitative impact that we have yeah
0: thank you so much for having me here and uh, good luck with the rest of the podcast
1: and thank you so much and all the best to you as well